0: It's great to be in the house of the Lord, as well as for you who are joining us online. It's so good to gather here together and to sing praises to our God. I know I got some um, fans of sports in the house that are familiar with this phrase. If you're not a fan of sports, maybe in marketing, protect this house. Have you heard this phrase? What's the idea behind this? Under Obviously, it was uh, popularized by Under Armour uh, to protect this house. They're speaking of their home field or their home court. They're saying, hey, when people come into our house, we got to win. We got to make sure we win. How many of you have ever had a home game or a home court or whatever and you lost? It's kind of, oh, it makes the loss even worse, especially if you get blown out. And we've even seen teams do things in other courts and stuff, and it just hurts a little different. Well, there's a story of a coach. He had had enough of losing, especially losing in front of his fans. And so he called all his coaches into the room. He sat them down and he said, all right, listen, you know that guy? who gets knocked down and he gets back up. And the coach is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he gets knocked down and he gets back up. Yeah, coach, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, he gets knocked down and he gets back up. I mean, we fill this room up guys. And they're like, yeah, coach. He gets knocked down. He gets more excited. Stuff starts flying around on tables. He gets knocked down. He gets back up, gets knocked down. He gets back up, gets knocked down. Do you know that guy in the coach? Yeah, we know that guy. You want us to get that guy. And he goes, no. What? I want the guy who's knocking everybody down. We always get the guys who are getting knocked down and keep getting up. Find me the guy who's knocking people down. The idea is he's had enough and his emotions and his energies and his passions are saying, we must protect this house and we can't let people just come in here and dominate us. Go find me someone who can stop this from happening. I title our message today, zeal for your house. Zeal for your house. The word zeal, zealot, zealousness, energy, enthusiasm. It's been said, nothing has ever been done without enthusiasm. That makes sense, right? There's not a ton of Eeyores changing the world, right? I guess I don't even know why we should try, right? I mean, it's let's go, we got this. Zeal, though, For your house is a phrase we remember from scripture. And many of you are thinking, oh, this is the passage where Jesus goes and cleanses out the temple. What do you know of that account? Why did he do that? What was it for? Where was he in the temple when he did it? Was that important? Was he out of control? Was he like losing his emotions? I mean, Jesus can't sin, so what is this? And if you understand the context, it comes right after he walks up to a tree and says, be cursed and may no fruit come from you again. Only outside looking in, you might go, what did the tree do to you, Jesus? You might even be thinking, Jesus, why are you behaving this way? I mean, gentle, lowly, suffering servant. This is what we're used to. This is what we've been meeting in the gospel of Mark. In fact, in the Mark and account, it's been over and over. Even some of us have sat back and said, something I've realized is he often says, don't go tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Can you see? Yes, I can see, Lord. Don't tell anybody. Just go home. So, so what's going on? Because last week, Jesus has gotten a cult and he's coming into the city And everybody's singing his praises, and he's accepting it. And and he's accepting this lauding and this fame. and, And what's going on? Because now Jesus is doing things we've never seen him do. One author says, this is a Jesus you can't ignore. This Jesus is here too. And so let's discover this, and let's work through this. Let's get some context around the zeal Jesus had for the house of the Lord, specifically the temple of that time, and, and, and see what is going on in the account. And so it's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin this text immediately. Heavenly Father, use your word today to comfort us and to guide us, but also to inspire us. But Lord, there's some Sundays we pray that when you truly challenge our souls to clean up any garbage we've allowed, that we would be convicted in our spirit, not shamed and guilted, but flooded with the grace that Jesus loves us so much as children of God that he desires us to live holy lives for he loves us. And Lord, if there's someone in this room who is just investigating the things of God, may they see Jesus' zeal for holiness and may that inspire them to live a life that might be a little less corrupt, a little less maybe dark than what they're experiencing. For there's hope even in that tunnel if they call upon the name of the Lord. And so Lord, would you please remove the room of distraction so we might hear from you Lord, I ask that you would humble our hearts, that we might receive it. And Lord, would you bless those who made a priority to sit under the teaching of God's word today? And would you help us to leave different because we visited here? And so Lord, use this message in Jesus' name, and all of you said, amen. All right, all right. We are in part three of a series, and we're walking towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're now in this third part of the suffering servant, betrayed and killed, and Jesus being risen, and we're headed into Jerusalem now. We followed him in on a cult, and I got a map, because I'm a visual learner. I bet some of you are as well. Now, I've altered the map just a little bit for our study for the rest of the series. So, So it's actually down here will be Bethany from last week, if you were with us. The triumphal entry is coming along the Mount of Olives, right? And then he heads towards the temple. Temple, and that's where he comes across the fig tree. So, so it always helps me to kind of get a grasp, geography-wise, of where I'm headed and where I'm at. So we picture him coming in on the triumphal entry. He went into the city like a Roman triumph. He came back out, Scripture told us last week, and now he's entering in the next day uh, via the same route. So Mark says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Okay, so we're coming from Bethany. He was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see it and if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. He almost phrases it in such a way as if Jesus walked up to that fig tree and said, may no one eat fruit from you again. Did you just hear what he said? Why why did he tell the tree? What's going on here? And, and, And you might sit back from that and go, Jesus, I don't understand this. Why the harshness towards the tree. And so I wrote down four phrases from this whole text today that put my journal just so I could process and think through it a little more. And the first one is this, may no one eat fruit from you again. What's going on with fig trees? Did Jesus not like fig trees? Some of you are not familiar with the Mediterranean area. I'm not either. But what we understand about fig trees is they begin with just a little a little piece, and then it grows. And they're very leafy. And so sometimes they can look like they're fully in season and, and they're producing the fruit on the tree. But this tree did not. And, and Mark says, well, it wasn't in season. So it was kind of odd. And you know Jesus is now in his 30s. He knows by now how fig trees work. So it's a little odd that it that wasn't in the time for small buds, let alone they bloom right before summer what's going on here but jesus reaction seems to indicate that he has a problem with it or even more so that he has a message he wants to communicate and this is where you begin to realize with a little more study about fig trees that jesus wasn't ticked off because he was hungry and the tree didn't deliver this isn't like the soda machine, young people, where you're hitting the button and it's not coming out. And you're like, stupid thing. This is not the activity here. Jesus is up to something. And in fact, the disciples heard it. May no one eat fruit from you again. Did you hear what he said? What do fig trees symbolize? They're mentioned over 50 times in scripture. So it would behoove us to know what they symbolize. <clears throat> Why are fig trees mentioned so much? what is referred to as God's fig tree symbolically as well as in God's plan. Well, Israel is known as God's fig tree. It was a symbol of blessing. It was a symbol of Israel. In fact, many times Messiah is predicted to come and Israel will look like a big fig tree that's in full bloom. But in reality, it's barren and has no fruit. And even when Messiah comes, Hosea begins to even give this idea that when surely I'll consume them, says the Lord, no grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. There's even this prophetic utterance that's coming a day where Israel's going to not embrace the Messiah and Jesus will be in a time period where Israel, he, he, he sees this fig tree is even denouncing that there's not this great worship being done, but much like a fig tree that looks great on the outside, but inside there's nothing. It harkens back to you whitewashed tombs, he said to the Pharisees. Oh, you clean the outside, but inside there's filthiness. So often we clean the outside of the cup But inside, it's dirty. So you must remember that Jesus, the suffering servant, the Son of Man, is also a prophet. He is prophesying what will come and using a symbol or even this object lesson to communicate. For that is many times with the prophets. Dude, you can look back in the minor prophets. We have prophets laying in the streets for 300-some days, communicating being fallen on a side. That many days, we have Jeremiah walking around in a cistern, communicating through object lessons that God is up to something, specifically judgment and denouncing Israel for its greatness on the outside, but barrenness and no fruit. And he says, may no one eat fruit from you again. And then they came into Jerusalem and he entered the temple And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Jesus is having himself a day. He's frustrated with the tree. Now he's headed to the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And and he would not allow anyone to carry out anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Imagine if I walked out on a Sunday morning and I started like this. All right, you know what? I've got to talk about something. Okay. Might be a deacon or two. Go- somebody go get Chris. Somebody go get him. I'm clearly sending a message but you understand that that would be driven by emotion. Well, this emotion is real. And there's this righteous anger of what's occurring. But if you don't understand the context, you always think it's an overreaction. If you don't understand what was going on, you might tend to think he's just emotionally upset. He's having a rough day. But when you begin to understand everything Jesus does is intentional, you begin to ask yourself, what was it that was bothering him so much. And so I wrote the second phrase, den of robbers. Jesus, what do you mean? You have made the temple a den of robbers. That is not what is to be done. Where is Jesus where this is occurring? Upon further study, you'll find That this is going on in what was called the court of the Gentiles. Let's pull up the court. The court of the Gentiles was right off the side of the Holy of Holies or the holy place, the place of God's dwelling. This massive temple. One of the wonders of the world of that time period. I mean, look at it in comparison to the other buildings. I mean, just this glorious thing. And this is where be, the Jews would come and worship. Well, there was a court for the Gentiles as if God planned in the design that Gentiles would be allowed to come close to him. Young people, the Gentiles, many of us here today, would be allowed to come in and worship, but they had to bring things to worship. And as the Jewish plan worked out and how they did this, they came and they brought a lamb for sacrifice or they brought, I guess we get an alarm going off. We'll find out what that is in a second. A lamb for sacrifice or that you guys can interrupt me and tell me what it is. Or doves, okay? Do we have any update for everybody? Snow squall update. All right. So Renew Bible. If you're watching from another state or anything, we have a snow squall going outside and hopefully not inside. And we'll move on. See, it was not the Lord's will that this place would be removed from distraction. Um, so let's recenter ourselves in the, praise God, in the nice dry air and hear and continue. If you're watching online, you couldn't hear it. We had alarms going off in the auditorium or at least on cell phones. Heavenly Father, redirect us as we go back to your word. And and thank you, Lord, that we can study it today. Amen. So in the court of the Gentiles, they would come, all right, and they would do sacrifices there, okay? And so they would bring uh, doves that were to be sacrifices as well as lambs. And what was going on is that there were people, money changers, who came into the court of Gentiles and they would exchange the money for you could not perform the sacrifices by using Roman coin, so you had to transfer it into a shekel And so what they would do is they charge you for the money changing. Much like if we were to go to another country, we would take our currency and turn it into that country's currency. That would be the same thing that they were doing, but they have a tariff on it. They would increase prices on that so that they could take money from them. Now they would use that shekel to go buy the doves or to go buy a lamb, and they wouldn't want to bring it from these foreign places, because they would come from different nations into the court of Gentiles. And so they would upcharge the lamb, of course, as well as the doves. Josephus, a Roman historian outside of Scripture, recorded that there were over 250, some thousand lambs slaughtered at the time of Passover. This was a lucrative business. And people were taking advantage of it. And they had taken the court of the Gentiles and turned it into Q Mart. No, No, not Q Mart, but if you're, if you're not local, you know what I'm talking about. Nothing wrong with Q Mart. But they've made it this marketplace. I remember Saturday mornings, my wife leaving early years ago to go out to Rice's and all these different places. I'm getting real local here, but, but these marketplaces where you get to go around and I enjoy them just like you, but Jesus going, that's not what this place is for. This isn't a place to make money. This isn't a place to upcharge my people. And they were making it virtually impossible in the court of Gentiles for them to worship God. I mean, you've gone through this. I remember walking up to a certain, in a certain baseball game and, and you got someone with you, especially when the kids are young, they're not watching that full Phillies game unless there is a soft pretzel or a french fry or something in their hands with a soda, right? And it's gotta be the souvenir one, cause that's cool, right? And so you say, yeah, we'd like a soda and, and, and uh, we'd like a soft pretzel and a popcorn for you. Yeah, okay, that'll be $90. You like stumble out of there, right? But it got you trapped. And your overall enjoyment of the game is based on whether those kids are enjoying their food. And so you got to get it. And it's all upcharged, and we know it. This is what was going on. And Jesus is going, no. No. In fact, it's worse than that. This is not true and proper worship he's saying isn't this written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations and that's the first time that phrase may have caught you because it was going on in the court of the gentiles it was for all the nations they were supposed to be able to come in and instead they're just making money off of But make no mistake, Jesus is doing something very similar to what he did with the triumphal entry. Instead of this quiet, suffering servant, he's being loud and aggressive. He is forcing their hand. Don't sit back in your houses and plot to kill me. I'm standing right here. And anybody watching his activity in front of the leaders throwing tables over is saying, what's he trying to do, get himself killed? He's forcing their hand. And the chief priest, scripture says, and the scribes heard it and they were seeking ways to destroy him. And they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. But an evening came, they went out of the city Scripture continues, and it talks about Jesus continually moving forward the next day. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree again, and it was withered away to its roots. And and Peter, he remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. I think Peter's going, can you believe it's withered? And Jesus is going, have faith in God. No, no, I wanted to talk about the how and and the why and the what are you up to? And Jesus says, this isn't really a time for how, why and what. There are times in our lives where Jesus does things and there's no necessarily explanation. And in those moments, we hear the phrase, have faith in God. All this behavior is intentional. They want to focus on the explanation. And Jesus wants them to focus on the means of how it happened. Folks, dependent trust is more important than independent understanding. So often we want to go, I need to make sense of this. I need to understand this. And Jesus is saying, write it down, have faith in God this tree is barren like unfruitful Israel it looks great on the outside but it has no fruit and Jesus has denounced it that there is a coming judgment for this hypocrisy of looking good on the outside and inside being full of uncleanliness Aren't we still tempted today as children of God in this New Testament era to clean up on Sundays, not say things we would say during the week, act certain ways we don't act during the week, live out certain things or praise the name? In fact, could it not be said of us from time to time possibly? They honor me with their lips, but I know their hearts are actually far from me. They stand when everyone stands. They'll even offer a few words to try to look the part. But I know their hearts are far from me. And this was the issue that Jesus had with Israel. And he was using this fig tree as an example. And he continues by kind of challenging their faith. He talks about it in Matthew 17. He says, because of your little faith, I truly say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to the mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Wait a minute, Jesus, are you saying, if I have great faith, I'll be able to walk out and go, Haycock Mountain, watch this. Is that what he's saying? Jesus teaches more and says, truly, I say to you, it's a verily, verily in scripture. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, what mountain? Do you remember the map? He's right by Mount Olivet where he one day will return. Whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe and you have received it and you will be yours. You're like, wait a minute. Is this it? Have I found this secret code? Whatever you ask, if I just believe that I'll receive it, it'll come. Well, even James says, even James says, you you pray, but you don't believe. And a man who doesn't believe God should expect nothing in his prayer life. So so is it that? Is it like I just I just gotta believe more? But but Jesus follows it even with a verse. Right after the whatever you ask, he says, oh, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So, so wait a minute. He said, if I just believe, but then all of a sudden you, you give me a heart check. Like, like, it really matters how I approach you. Have you ever noticed that some people have a prayer life where it just seems like, wow, they've got a grip on what God desires. What do they know? What do they say? How do they pray? I mean, do they understand the whatever you ask? There's so many scripture passages that teach us about how to align with God in prayer. But I'm a, I'm a forgetful learner. Some of you have minds like traps. You read something and you never forget it. I forget, any young people in school with me, I forget what I'm reading in the middle of that paragraph. Anybody with me? I'm like in the paragraph, thinking about something else. Oh yeah, focus, focus, right? Now then I gotta read the paragraph again. I mean, I, I struggle with that. So I've always really enjoyed acronyms. I've made up songs. I did whatever it took to get the degree. And some of the things that I've done, I've brought into ministry. And so acronyms have always helped me The whatever you ask phrase of scripture, I have always implemented through what I call the Abba dynamic A, B, B, A. And those help me ask a question Am I daily A? Am I truly B? Am I coming B? Am I humbly A? And you say, Well, what are they? They're based off of four anchor verses. For coming to God in prayer and seeing him do whatever you ask. Really? Yeah. Here's the first one. A, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. John 15, 7. Am I daily abiding in scripture? Because if I am, the word of God will be in me and it will be producing fruit And it will come out of my prayer life. Abiding means close, intimate, personal relationship. An abiding prayer life is not one who, oh my word, I just found out I have a disease. I don't know who God is, but I'm crying out. That is not the abiding prayer life. The abiding prayer life is, I just wanna do whatever I wanna do. I don't really care what scripture says. I kinda do the Sunday thing to make mom and dad happy. That's not abiding prayer abiding prayer is a close intimate relationship the second is b if you believe you will receive whatever you ask in prayer you're not going to see answered prayer if you don't believe god answers prayer you won't pray if you don't believe god answers prayer matthew 21:22 reminds us though if you believe you'll receive what you ask in prayer but it's also also has to be the second b let us therefore come boldly not timidly, not like, God, I know you probably don't want to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. And then A, aligning. It's John who teaches us, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So I've broken that down to say, when I come to God and I want to see him answer whatever I ask, I have to come with an Abba prayer. Am I daily abiding, John 15, 7? Am I truly believing? Am I coming with boldness or boldly, James 4? Am I humbly aligning, not to me getting what I want, but him getting what he wants for my life? When I do that, I see answered prayer. Jesus modeled it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried, Abba, Father. Close, intimate, abiding relationship. And then he prayed, All things are possible for you. Believing prayer. Jesus believed God could do anything, including move a mountain, let alone change what was happening to him. And so he asked very boldly, remove this cup from me. Bold ask, can we do this another way? Do I have to die on the cross? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He aligned to God. Yet, not what I want, but yours be done. They say when you pray, you've heard it said. The answer is yes, no, or, or wait. And, and I, I don't mind that. That's great. I, I can see that. But we've talked about it in our series, because this was earlier mentioned by Mark, this very question of whatever I ask, When you pray Abba prayers, you're going to get yes, no, and I would argue, endure. I I want to endure. Yes, no, endure. What do you mean? Have faith in God. But it hurts. Have faith in God. But I'm not sure. Have faith in God. But I don't understand. Have faith in God. God, why would you do this? Have faith in God. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So when we look to someone to say, who do I want to have faith like? It's not a brother or sister in Christ, although that's great. It's great to have heroes, but it's Jesus. He is the author. He wrote how to do it, and he's the perfecter. He showed you how to do it. Move forward when God the Father says, endure. You're sitting there going, you mean to tell me, Jesus? Jesus? Had a prayer, not get yes or no, but endure. Yeah, and for the joy set before him, knowing God's way is best, he endured. He had faith, and he moved forward. I got thinking about this text. Jesus is acting so different. He, he's he's boldly walking up to the tree and saying, "May no one have grief from you again." And it shrivels up. In fact, there is another harmony of this account where it's summarized as the tree shriveled up and withered immediately. And you are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, did it happen immediately or happened the next day? I believe that's pretty easy to rectify when you look at one account is is talking about it in summary. If, If a tree shriveled up a day, or even two days, or three days, it's just right away. Mark gives us a little more detail to add the account that it was actually the next day they came back and Peter said, whoa, it's, it's shriveled up. So Jesus, he's shriveling up trees as an example. They're taking all this in. He's walking into the temple. He's changing, turning over the table money changers saying, this is not true and proper worship. I'm, I'm looking at this going, and I, I gotta get my hands around this. And it reminded me of that verse. Zeal for your house consumes me. Like Zeal for your house, speaking of God's dwelling, the place where God dwells. In fact, in the gospel of John, he says, the disciples remembered it's written. Do you remember where that's written? It's written in Psalms. It comes from the mouth of David. You know what David says? The reproaches of you, God, are the reproaches of me. In other words, when someone mocks the things of God, I feel like they're mocking me. Do you ever get that emotion? When someone mocks the things of Christianity, I feel like they're coming at me. When someone says God's not good, I feel like they're coming at me. I, I, I just really struggle with I feel it emotionally. And that's part of you, having that Holy Spirit inside you going, that's not truth. You're talking out of your feelings, not out of your truth. And so David is talking about this, going, mm, God, I just, when when you are mistreated, I feel that. And his disciples remembered that when Jesus was doing this in the house of the Lord. And I got thinking, do I have the same zeal for the house of the Lord? Do I have a zeal for the house of the Lord? Where is the house of the Lord? Jesus came in that week and died on a cross. Bled and died to offer the forgiveness of sin. We live in the 21st century here, and we're New Testament believers. We're not offering lambs at sacrifice. Jesus came and did that to appease the wrath of God. So how do I show zeal for the house of the Lord? Is it do I make sure, do I make sure the, the walls are really nice or 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 uh, the the floor's really cleaned? Or wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, a minute. is it possible that this building isn't the house of the Lord at all? Where is the house of the Lord, child of God? If you're pointing to yourself, you're on track. I remember being a young youth pastor and you do some stupid stuff when you're a young youth pastor. You really do. And I did a lot more than most. Our our guys are awesome. But I remember thinking, I got this great illustration. I love to to build events where they were actually a sermon illustration. So I thought, I'm gonna build this obstacle course. I got a bunch of guys out here. We're gonna build this obstacle course and I'm gonna teach them in life. Like sometimes the obstacle is very difficult. Sometimes you fly through it and you think, man, I got this, that was nothing. And then the next thing you're hit with something else and I'm gonna teach them all this. But the problem was the rope I wanted them to go through, I wasn't able to get up high enough with the ladders. I thought, how could I do this and keep it maneuvering? And so this was in the age before the, the wonderful genie lift has changed ministry. But, but this was in the age where I was like, how do we get up there all these heights? And so I decided to use the church van. But you see, that didn't fly over with some of our brothers in Christ that were a little bit older that kind of had this idea of a sanctuary and this is God's house and all those things are great and I'm with them. But at the same time, they came to me like, get off of that van. I'm on top of the van, hanging like, and, and zeal, okay? I mean, fired up. Get off of it. That. that is the Lord's van. <laughs> and I should have just shut up and got off the van. But I'm fresh out of Bible college thinking I'm something theologically. I'm like, oh, this is God's. I thought everything was the Lord's. Oh, just, just get off the van. And I did the whole thing. Where, like, is it true? Is this the sanctuary? Or is the sanctuary I'm doing? Just get off the van. Fortunately, that man was a dear mentor in my life. I loved him dearly. He kind of understood where I was coming from. I understood where he was coming from. And we just had a great relationship. But sometimes we get traditionalized with words and we tend to think that a church is a building when the church is the body of Christ to the believers. It's not a building. And that's what Paul had to teach 1 Corinthians Church, which is the church of Corinth. And he would say things like, don't you realize? Did you know he said that often to them? Don't you guys get it? What? What? If you want to have zeal for God's house, you're his house. What? We're not looking for a temple made by men anymore. It's you. And he says to the church in Corinth, he goes, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you together are the temple. You mean if I vandalize the building? No. This is in the context of Division. And Paul's saying, when you are going after each other and you are purposely trying to divide the church, I see it. And there's discipline for that. When you refuse forgiveness, when you choose gospel, when you choose to hurt somebody, this is why it's so important for the church to understand the one another's. We will annoy each other. We will bother each other. We will tend to hurt one another. But we also have the chance to encourage one another and forgive one another and bear with one another and love one another. This world looks at the church and the number one reason most people don't come to faith, they say, is because the church is full of hypocrites. There's people who have joked, well, there's always room for one more. (laughs) But we often look at the church and we're kind of hard on it when the church is just a hospital for souls there's no perfect people allowed in renew bible on the stage or on the floor nobody we're all the same dirt under the cross our righteousness comes only from jesus nothing we've done and shame sometimes on the church when we have expectations of one another to be perfect when we're all growing at very different speeds in our faith and we need encouragement and love, but instead sometimes we get self-righteousness and judgment, and can you believe that happened at church? Yes, because we struggle with sin. We mess up, and that's why the church should be actually more of an example of grace. Look, yes, is there hypocrisy in the church? Yeah, sure there is and everything. I can turn my TV. You don't need to go to church to see hypocrisy. But there are just some people we make mistakes. It's when we claim to be perfect that we really are making the biggest failures. Oh, what it would do for us to stop looking at everyone else and first clean the inside of the cup. Don't you realize? And then Paul says, take it personally, Corinth. Don't you realize, he says again in in chapter six, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit's living in, who lives in you and was given to you by God. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in this earthly tent. This earthly tent, it's got a soul. It's gonna live forever with God or live or die forever separated from him. And while we're on earth, we're told that if this is the temple, do I have zeal for it? Or am I treating this thing like garbage? Have you ever heard the the GIGO principle, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out? We can't just keep putting garbage in this and think that we can worship God and holiness. And I know holiness isn't a popular subject from a lot of stages, but at Renew Bible, we see Jesus encouraging us, clean it up. Therefore, I urge you, I don't, I don't want your dead sacrifices of the Old Testament. Jesus paid the price. I want you to offer yourselves, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper form of worship. The best way you can worship, the best way you can zeal for the house of God is to think about what you're putting in, what you're pondering, what you're allowing in this earthly tent or in this temple that God dwells. So I got some questions for us to think through today. Maybe even our small groups could go through throughout the week. Never eat from you again. What hypocrisy am I allowing to corrupt my temple? Where where do I need to kind of flush it out? You know, David said, create me a clean heart. Flush me out, God. Get all this garbage out of me. He asked God to do the cleansing. And it was right after he committed sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Create me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit in me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Where am I holding myself up? Where am I discouraged just simply because of the garbage I've been letting in? What if you made a change this year to say, I gotta make some better decisions and have zeal for the house of God? Den of robbers, what do I need to cleanse my temple of? Have faith in God. Where am I not trusting God regarding my temple? Whatever you ask, what am I willing to ask God to do with my temple? You know, when you think about just having zeal for the house of the Lord, you often think of the church building. And by no means, please don't mistake me. We should respect the things that God has given us and blessed us with. And I believe Renew Bible does a phenomenal job. And on top of that, I think our leaders, our young people, what an incredible way they treat this place. But when we're talking about where the Lord dwells, we're talking about ourselves. And what are we allowing to build up any roots of bitterness or anything that we need to flush out? Sometimes it's so hard to stop something, it's better to kind of cleanse it. Have you ever heard the power of drinking more water? I mean, I've been trying to drink more water this year. It's not going that well. Especially at night. You, You just... You just try to drink water, try to drink water and I know it's good for me and there's so many benefits. Oh, your organs, everything when you drink more water. I came into uh, this morning and there was uh, some chatter going on back in the production suite because one of the guys, he's not impressed with my little water bottle, one of the guys had this and we're like, what is that? He said, I'm drinking more water this year. And I said, you have no idea. My sermon today is about taking care of the temple. And um, we start joking. Yeah, I don't know what's going on in the court of the Gentiles, you know? And, uh, and, and, and so guys are joking. We're like, what is that? And it has words of encouragement on it. And the times you're supposed to drink by. So he, he, he guzzled a little bit before I, I came up here. So he'd be caught up when you all looked at the illustration. But it says, good morning, 7 a.m. This is a gallon. It's eight pounds. okay. A lot of young mothers out there, you know exactly what this feels, right? You know what I'm talking about? So, so, I mean, it's eight. We're like, what is that? In fact, one of the guys joked, do you need a carry-on case if you travel with this thing? And we're like, look at the gigantic straw in it. And somebody said, that's not a straw, that's a PVC pipe. I mean, this is, this is a huge water bottle. It says, good morning, hydrate yourself, remember your goal. He said, you need to read Remember Your Goal because you're like, how many times have I gone to the bathroom? and they keep chugging feeling awesome don't give up almost finished you did it and he goes and you can't rush late at night or you'll be up all 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 night but the joke started goes because i'm feeling so good now he's a big guy he's well over six feet tall he's big and 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 we're joking and stuff he goes but i've i felt i'm it's really great to drink more water i said it's cool It's because you're like taking care of your temple he was, oh, yeah, you're cleansing the toxins out and just taking that, making that physical deposit on my body. Just bring some energy to me. Bring some life. I mean, and we all understand the power of that. Some of you might design it for your personality. Like, get up, idiot. What's wrong with you? You know, I don't know how you work, right? All right? Um, I don't work well with shame either. So so I like that, but, but um, and I want to make public that this is not my goal to drink this daily, but... Uh, I can understand making a physical deposit is one way you can worship God. Did you know that? One way you can worship God is simply by taking care of your temple better. And Jesus is like, a girl, a guy. I'm glad you're showing some zeal. There's some things that need to stop. There's some things I need to flush out. There's some things I need to rethink through. Let it not only be physical, But spiritual, God, what needs cleared out so I can endure in 2024 and have faith regardless of my circumstance and move forward in your will, not mine, because I know you're good. And your goodness and mercy are gonna follow me. And so whether it's, yes, I want that for you, child, or no, not right now, you're not ready, or if it's endure, have faith in God, I will show up, I'm doing this on purpose. One thing I know that will honor my savior is worshiping God with the temple. Jesus, in a room this size, I'm sure there's discouragements and defeats and struggles and difficulties. We don't want to hear some self-help list. We need to hear from you. And some of the ways we hear from you are by watching your behavior in scripture. You're so intentional. And you are abhorred by hypocrisy. You want us to be authentic. You know we struggle. You know we need you. But you also know that we can't truly follow you if we're harboring all this junk in the temple. And so may we have zeal for your house. May we gather together and yearn for unity and how we love one another. And may we individually look at our lives and have the courage to say, hey, Jesus, Come on in and have your way. What needs stopped? What needs confronted? What needs driven out? So that there's no hypocrisy. It's just a child of God who needs you to create in them a clean heart again. If there's anyone in the room who has never experienced what it feels like to be a child of God, may they be interested to know this Jesus who loved them first by offering his life on the cross so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But more importantly, for those who call upon his name, offer that person a cleansing, a washing spiritually, if you will, a flushing out of the things that are wrong and sinful and through repentance, finding the hope and joy of living a pure life before the Lord. May we hear these words and follow them. In Jesus' name, amen.